when you know that your your job is a destiny bending job, it's not just for your performance. It's how is this going to touch someone in a way that will take their life in a different direction? Hi, I'm Jessica. And I'm Girish. And this is the Destiny Benders podcast, where we explore the impact of international education on the lives of students and professionals from across the globe. It's a podcast for international educators, by international educators, and about international educators. And in each episode, we'll be meeting with Destiny Benders of our industry. We'll look beyond the job title and really get to know the people whose mission it is to change lives and bend destinies. Our guest today is Dr. Gabriel Malfatti, Director of Global Engagement at the College of Education and Human Development for the University of Missouri. Hi, Gabrielle. Thank you so much for joining us on the Destiny Benders podcast. Hi, it's delightful to be here with you today. Thank you for having me. I'm really happy to have you, Gabrielle. Obviously, we have about 10 years of working together, and I'm really, really excited that you could be a guest on it. And and I think our audience should know that the term Destiny Benders was coined by you on one of our trips. Uh, But before we get into all of that, Can you just tell us about you, your whole journey of being an educator? Uh, You have an interesting story to share, and I'd love for you to tell us. Well, long, long ago, in a land far away, (laughs) I was born and raised in Colombia, South America. I am one of those Colombians that didn't know I was an Italian until I moved to the U.S. The Italian side of my family was the one where the gatherings took place, where the meals for Christmas and New Year's took place. So that was a a very active part of of my upbringing. And by the grace of God, when I came to to the U.S., I went to school in South Philadelphia, which at the time was an Italian enclave. And I will never forget how when the gentleman who was handing out schedules was going through the process, it was very bureaucratic. He was calling out names. When he called my name, he's like, Malfatti. And he actually looked up and he's like, that's Italian. And I'm like, yes. And all of a sudden, I knew that being Italian was a really good thing in South Philly. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So it it was one of those moments where, where your identity is coming to play and you realize that there are there are aspects of it that um, speak not just to yourself but to other people. So I finished high school at South Philadelphia High School at the time that was a magnet school. There were 17 languages taught at the school, and I benefited from engaging with faculty and students that thought of us immigrants as people who were coming here to stay. Many of my teachers were first-generation Americans, and so they treated us as people that were in the U.S. to stay in the U.S., and they felt that their mission was to prepare U.S. citizens. At no point did I ever feel that they were planning on me going back, even though I wasn't sure what I was going to do at the time. It was 1983, and fast forwarding a year, I had the opportunity to come to Missouri 
and live with friends of my Philadelphia family, who then became my American family, even though she was from Ecuador. So my American family is from Ecuador. And I attended Lincoln University, which is a historically Black institution here in the state. I learned a lot because as an international student, I could only work on campus. And they gave me a job with the professors emeriti who had an office where they just sat and wrote and talked and talked and talked. So one of those professors was Lorenzo Green, who was an eminent sociologist and historian, and he was writing his memoirs. So I had the benefit of learning about Black culture from from this professor. As life would have it, I left Lincoln and came to the University of Missouri for my early studies. And then when I finished my master's, I went back to Lincoln and established the Spanish program there. While doing all of that, another aspect of my identity came to light. (laughs) I had a student who pointed to the fact that I was not white, that that I was Latina. And all of a sudden, I was like... What what does that even mean? Uh, And what does it mean that my students, uh, my African-American students are seeing me in that light? So so that was another kind of moment of, of spinning of my responsibility toward my students as they were seeing me as a person of color. Were you not identifying yourself as a person of color? No, I was married to a white American speaking English all the time, going to a Methodist church in a town of 3,500 people. And I had grown up in Colombia being among, I mean, like there's a lot of colorism in Latin America. And I grew up blonde and green-eyed. And race was not that big a factor. So I was white, but it didn't really mean that much. So I was really oblivious to, to that aspect of, of the ethnic identity. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that if anything, I identified still as Colombian, but the, the, the whole Latin perspective had, had not been one that I had been involved with just because of where my where my life had taken me to that point in the U.S. So at this point, you're running the Spanish department at Lincoln University. What had you studied at university? What had that been your career goal at that point? Or how did you fall into that? And then where did you decide to go from there? So I had studied at Lincoln and at Lincoln, they did not have a Spanish program. I started with business until I got into accounting class and it was like, okay, this is not, this is not going to work ever. So I, I switched my major. I always enjoyed education, not teaching because I had never taught, but I had always enjoyed learning. So I thought, okay, I will be a teacher. At the time, because they didn't offer a Spanish program, I'm like, okay, I can be an English teacher and then take the praxis for Spanish and become a Spanish teacher. About, I did that for about three semesters. And then one day I was sitting with my advisor, Dr. Linda Wyman, and she said to me, you need to go where people are doing what you really want to do. If you want to teach Spanish, you need to go up the road, go to Mizzou and really get a degree in teaching Spanish. Don't try to do this English thing. She was like, no, go where you really want to be. Um, So she kicked me out of Lincoln pretty much, which was really 
interesting because eventually I came back to Lincoln. I taught at Lincoln for 15 years. And by the time I left Lincoln, I was the chair of the Department of English, Foreign Languages and Journalism, which Dr. Linda Wyman was a veteran teacher in. So this person that had been my advisor was now part of my of my teaching core. She so that was a, a destiny bending moment for you personally. Oh, and sometimes absolutely. destiny bending comes in the ways of a swift kick in the, the butt. <laughs> exactly. Get out of here. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it is that destiny bending moment where you go, there is this other road. There is a little something farther up the road that you need to go and explore. Don't dwell here. How, how did you feel about that, Gabriel? Because, you know, I'm assuming you, you're on a path, you're thinking you want to do something, and there, there comes somebody says, no, 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 this is not the path for you. You should go this other way. Mm-hmm. How does one react in that situation? I mean, obviously, we all have had those situations in life, but how do you react to something like that? The first thing is, like, you are you are messing with my comfort (laughs) (laughs) because I was on a groove. um, Even though we lived in California, Missouri, which was about 30 miles out of Jefferson city where uh, Lincoln was situated. I had put Carol in school at the Montessori school in Jefferson city. That way I could drop her off in the morning, go to school and then pick her up and go back home. So when Linda says you need to go up the road, I'm like, wait, that's going to mean I'm going to be driving an hour and a half every day that I have class, that I have to bring Carolyn to school, drop her off in Jeff City. She's going to be in a town where she doesn't have anybody. There's an emergency. Both of us are a half hour away. So those were the things that were laying in my mind. But I had also read in in John Livingston Siegel, there is one quote that is not a quote because I remember differently than it was written, but it works for me. And it is a part where his mentor tells him something to the the stand of your wingspan is as wide as you think of it to be. In moments like that Linda moment, she was seeing me far greater than I was seeing myself. And she was seeing my authentic self before I was becoming it. And so I think that the gift that comes in in those moments is that outside perspective of someone who says to you, this is not enough for you. This is not what you really want to do because there's something larger and greater waiting for you down the road or up the road in, mm-hmm. in that case. So you it takes just, a leap of faith, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Both in the person who does the, the kick in the butt yeah. <laughs> uh, and in yourself. Yeah. So how did you get involved then in international engagement? You were 15 years at the Eng- head of the English department or foreign languages department at so, Link. Yeah. So I was only chair for three years. I, I had been the coordinator of foreign languages for that whole time, but then I was chair over the other two departments as well. What I tell people is that I kept inventing jobs for myself. So when I came to Lincoln, they were only offering Spanish classes needed for the BA. And so I talked to my department chair and I'm like, we should have a Spanish major. And she's like, sure, knock yourself out. So (laughs) all of a sudden I'm proposing all these courses. There were semesters where I was teaching six different courses because the students were moving up, but they weren't hiring anybody else. In that process, there was one, one instance where one of this group of students who had been with me for like four semesters said, you know, 
we should go and try this Spanish thing out somewhere because learning it here in Missouri, it's not going to like do anything for us. And so they talked me into creating a study abroad in Mexico. Lincoln had no study abroad office, no study abroad anything. We had no rules, no regs, nothing. But this student said they wanted to go to Mexico. By golly, we went to Mexico. So we found a charter flight to Puerto Vallarta. It was all-inclusive, $350 a person for a week from December 12th to December 19th, I remember. Oh. We, and I traveled, I think it was like seven or eight students, all of whom I knew. And so we had an amazing time. We, we, ha- we would get together in the mornings and have our conversation time. And then I would just turn them loose. And then we would regroup in the evenings and they would tell me what they were learning and what they were seeing and what they were doing. And then we did a a civilization, Mexican civilization course attached to it. All in all in one week, three credit hours. It was crazy and fantastic at the same time. So that that was was really your first international education endeavor. That was my first faculty leading proposition ever. <laughs> but when I had taken the job, um, the, the, the provost at that time had asked me, she said, will you take them? Will you go with them somewhere? And I was like, sure. I had gone on a study abroad. How, how hard could it be? Um, and I did my study abroad in Spain and took my daughter with me, which is another story. But Yes, that's how it all started. And so I kept doing this for a couple of years. The more I learned about risk management and even risk (laughs) to begin with, let alone management, um, I had a conversation with my then president and I said, you know, if we really want to play this international game, you should have a, a director. And she looked at me and she said, I thought I had one. And I said, well, then you better name her that. (laughs) And so I left her office with the title of study abroad director. And she said, but I don't want you just taking your your foreign language students. I want you to open this to other students around the university because I didn't have the capacity to be traveling with all these students. What we did was join the consortium, uh, one of the consortiums for international education and started sending students with those programs. And that's how that happened. Then I created another position for me as um, chair of the Internationalization Steering Committee. We brought the ACE Laboratory to Lincoln. We had them talk to us about internationalization and how could we do things better. We also started the Missouri, Missouri Study Abroad Consortium with other institutions. And then I became involved with NAVSA, did the NAVSA Academy, and the NAVSA Academy was the Kool-Aid. Then it was like, yes, this is what I really want to do. Um, Tell us about that. So from there, you went into full international education mode. Yes, that was the, that became the, the goal. I had been teaching language for 15 years. It had gotten to the point where, um, you know, if I have to go through these verb conjugations one more time. I I might hurt someone. Um, So I was at the same 
well, not at the same time, but eventually I was working on my doctorate. I had started a doctorate in foreign language teaching. I did a semester and I'm like, "Mm, this is not my thing. I had also done a semester of law school that was neither not my thing either. I was taking a class and one of my professors here at Mizzou said, you know, the EDD in that leadership, I think would fit you perfectly just because of the way you think, the way you process information, the way that you're building your career. I checked into it and started it, finished it. And when I graduated, I was still working at Lincoln but started looking because I had outgrown the institution in the sense that they were going, that was as far as they were going to go with internationalization. The University of Missouri asked me to teach a course for the EDD program from which I had graduated. Mm-hmm. And it was a course on ethics and IRB. Mm-hmm. And so while I was teaching that course, I was turning in grades and there was like this light bulb in my head that said, look at the job postings at Mizzou. And I went in and I started looking at the job postings and I found the position written for the director of international and intercultural initiatives. And I started reading the job description going, oh, my God, the only thing missing is my name. This is so me. I have done intercultural. I am a Latina teaching at a historically black institution. I have done the international I have known nothing but international my my whole life. This is this is it. This is me, and it's Mizzou. What, how much better could it get? I reached out to Jim Scott, who was then the director of international programs, and to Joe Donaldson, who had been on my dissertation committee. And I said, hey, I see this job posting. Do you think I should apply? And if I do, can I use you as a reference? And Joe replied right away. He was like. Absolutely, positively, you need to apply for this job. And yes, use me as a reference. And then Jim wrote back and he said, yes, absolutely. We'll talk when I get back from Indonesia, but don't use me as a reference. I'll explain when I get back. Well, he was on the committee. Uh, so <laughs> so he, he and I had worked together in some of this other consortia uh, work before. So he knew me from that. And Joe definitely knew me from being an ELPA student. I went through the interview process, got it, and ta-da, here we are. Ta-da, there you are. (laughs) You must have been so excited when you saw that job posting. I can only imagine. Yeah, because I had had some really good mentors. One of them was the president of a hospital where I was serving on the on the board. And when I asked her, okay, what are the next steps? Because at that point I was like, I'm, I'm ready to go anywhere. And she said, you know, start getting job postings of the things that you think you want to do. So I had this folder of job postings in international mm-hmm. education and also in diversity, equity, inclusion type positions. I would take them and I would highlight the things that I knew I could do and anything that I felt I still needed experience with. Budget management was one of the ones that I had as a, mm-hmm. as a faculty member I had never had experience with. And so when they offered me the position of chair, I'm like, ah, oh, this is what I need. This is what I need. And so I had personnel management and I and I had um, the, the budget. So all the pieces just kept falling into place. And when I read the job description that had been written for the position here at Mizzou, and I went back to that folder, it was like 
magically little elves had like picked out all the things that I had highlighted and put them into this other uh, one. You know, that that's a great piece of advice for anybody going through the job search process, right? People are always yeah. like, I'm for a job, something, I don't know what fits, you know, that's a great way to do it. I love that you did that. That was, yeah, that's fantastic that you shared that with us. Cause I think a lot of people listening might be like, I need to do this as well. Well, and, and I think that that's where you're truest to yourself. It's like when you're in front of that paper and you start going through the exercise of this is totally me. And you can see in pieces of writing, what excites you uh, about those positions and what it's like, oh, no, this, this is yeah, not something right, yeah. I want to be doing. Yeah. So that out, alchemy of, of uh-huh. seeing those things come together um, in the position here at Mizzou was truly magical. Well, I want to switch gears a little bit because, right. like I said earlier, you are the person who coined the term destiny vendors. I want to hear your thoughts about that. Like, what does that mean to you? What What prompted you on that trip when you shared that with me? And what does it mean to be a destiny bender? Talk about all of your thoughts around that. Absolutely. I'm excited to hear it, actually, because I'm really keen. Our podcast, you named our podcast, so I want to hear this. (laughs) Okay. So part of that destiny bending moment, when I came to the University of Missouri, I arrived here in August, and one of my good friends was the director of international admissions. And we had talked about okay, so now you have this position. What is it that you want to do with it? And I had said to him, you know, we need to take these pre-service teachers out of here and place them in classrooms where they can actually navigate other dynamics of, of race, of gender, of ethnicities, so that then we can talk about these things in, in, a, in a more global context. He and I had several conversations about goals and and intentions. One day he called me and he said, have you thought about India? And I'm like, no, (laughs) I'm Latin American. I haven't been thinking Latin America. And so he's like, well, there's somebody I wanted to meet. He put me in contact with Girish. And I remember the first time that we talked, I was like, okay, okay, uh-huh, yeah, uh-huh. And then he said, I can come to Mizzou and talk to you. And I'm like, okay, come to Mizzou. When he came, my office was still like a warehouse. <laughs> they had not I remember it. that. <laughs> I think they had laid the carpet. That was it. We didn't, I didn't have any of the of the niceties up or anything. Coming from an underfunded historically Black university, I was used to things taking forever for anything to happen because usually the money wasn't there, the approvals were not there, your time was not there because you're teaching four by fours. And so Girish and John show up at my office and we start talking. I said, you know, yeah, we can start talking about this and we can do it in 2014. And Girish is like, no, we'll do it this coming summer. And I'm like, uh-huh, yeah. He's like, and you should go to India with us in January when we have a um, a recruitment trip schedule. And so And this okay. was this was November of 2012. This is November. November of yes. 2012. Yeah. I still had to get all my shots, my visa, <laughs> get permission from my dean, everything. And we did it. So I think it was like December 31st. I'm like, I'm calling him going, okay, I have everything. I have the visa came in and and we're good. And I don't know exactly when we left in January. When we were in India, I was an observer to a very high degree 
because I was not there to recruit students. I was there to get to know the Indian school system, get to meet principals and teachers. But I was watching my colleagues for whom I had always known they traveled, but I didn't know exactly what they did when they got to where they traveled (laughs) to. And it was grueling. I I mean, we're like in these buses and it's hot and, and it's sticky and people's bellies are turned upside down and everything. But every time they walk into a school and they stood in front of 200, 300 students, they would just become this larger than life expression of our institutions, especially for me watching John representing Mizzou. Afterwards, we would have breakouts where students could come and ask questions. And I'm here just listening. A student could be asking the question for the 20th time, and he answered it with the same excitement and the same zeal and zest for the institution and all this. I'm processing all this during that week, and I don't know exactly the moment. I think Girish and I were going to see one of the principals to talk about the potential of of working with the college. And I said, you know what, you guys are your destiny vendors. I mean, you, you show up at these schools, and these kids got up this morning with some degree of wanting to go to school or not. And then you start telling your story about an Indian student coming to the U.S. and the opportunities that that has opened up for you. And then our colleagues come and talk about the institutions. And all of a sudden, this 17, 16-year-old that this morning was just happy having breakfast now has a dream of going to study in the United States. And you're sending them back home to say, hey, mom and dad, (laughs) I have this idea. It's going to cost you $40,000 a year, and I'm going to be on the other side of the globe, but I want to do this, and they make it happen. And that, to me, is like destiny bending moment where you had no idea this was coming your way today, but today it came. And out of those 300, it may be 10, 15, 30 that do it. Some of them may not come to the U.S., to any of the institutions that were represented, but for all of them, that possibility is now open of going elsewhere to, to pursue an education. So, so I came back, I wrote a blog that got published in uh, International Educator. For years, we have used that destiny-bending moment, destiny-bending person as part of the conversation among that initial group of friends we became friends, which was another destiny bending uh, occurrence because of, of, of the recognition of, of that. And it, then it places a different responsibility on you as well, because when you know that your job is a destiny bending job, it's not just for your performance. It's how is this going to touch someone in a way that will take their life in a different direction? I love that. I love that because we always, we, you know, people often talk about changing lives and that's what we're doing. We're changing lives and destiny bending is a different way of saying changing lives. And I think changing lives has been used so often. It's maybe overused. So thinking of it as destiny bending for me, it's just, it's refreshing. It's a little bit different. And it really speaks to, as you've just said, what it is that is international educators that we're doing. But Gabriel, can you talk about the flip side of it? Um, Obviously, yes, we as recruiters 
go out and change students' lives who we open up their world of opportunities to. But what about the students that you work with here, particularly your students that you're taking around the world and changing their lives? Can you talk a little bit more about that? Well, here it's a it's a, a destiny bending in the form of refining or redirecting the ethos of education and educator preparation of all the professions that should have globalized. You would think education would have been one of the first, but we are so far behind. I mean, when when you look at open doors, education majors travel abroad three or four percent, and that has been steady for the last 10, 20 years. When you start talking to pre-service teachers about opportunities to, to teach abroad, both as a student and following graduation, the profession cannot be the same the way that we prepare them cannot be the same. It takes on a a larger dimension of moving education from a very parochial preparation to a, yes, I want you to be able to teach each and every student in the state of Missouri, but I also want you to be able to teach students in Botswana or in Abu Dhabi or in Morocco. That requires very different conversations Mm -hmm. with the students with the faculty, with legislature, because when we start talking about we want all the students to be able to teach anywhere in the world, the superintendents come to my dean and go, wait, 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 we don't, we have a teacher shortage. We don't want them to be going anywhere in the world. What we tell them is like a lot of them come back and they come back with a heightened sense of purpose, with a heightened sense of what it means to be a teacher and to be a change maker as a teacher. And they also see the profession in very different ways when they teach at a private school in India or in Abu Dhabi and come back to our public school system. Um, they're able to recognize that corporate cloud that that those schools provide has a value, but at the same time, the level of access that public schooling in the United States provides is, is hard to encounter in other places around the world. And so even if they didn't go out to teach elsewhere, they're better prepared to teach a diverse class here. And, and actually, even the students who just do the Teach Abroad program for the summer, when they come back, they look for more diverse school districts. Mm-hmm. Um, many of our students here in Missouri come to college thinking that they're going to go back and teach in their same suburban district. And in fact, most teachers in the United States teach within 100 miles of when they where they grew up. And so when the students go to India and come back, they all of a sudden is like, no, I don't think I want to teach there. I want to go somewhere where there are people and families from other countries and different ethnicities. So it opens up their world. And it makes them confident in being able to deal in a world that is more open than the one that they grew up in. Yeah, it just broadens their perspective as study abroad does for almost every student in in any subject. So where do you go from here, Gabrielle? (laughs) So this year, now last year, we gained the approval of the International Baccalaureate Organization 
for a graduate certificate in global education and leadership. That's going to be a signature program. When we started talking about the certificate, I always wanted the IB endorsement. They just do really amazing work when it comes to schools that have a global mindset. Mm -hmm. And we are the first university in the U.S. to have partnered with them for the leader education program. They have many partnerships for the undergraduate teacher preparation program, but this is the first one in leadership. So that's going to be pulling me back into the classroom some, but we have the expectation that if we develop cohorts within countries, we would like to send a faculty member to meet with that cohort, either in countries or in regions, to have a more personalized experience. They'll also have the option of coming to Mizzou to complete one of the courses or to visit the university. Maybe we can arrange with some of the IB schools here in the U.S. for them to have a short-term visit, internship, mentorship yeah. type scenario. So we're not staying still. It's the the, the, the planet is too awesome to stay in one little corner of it. <laughs> <laughs> it's very true. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and I think that that's part of what we want to do for the students is make it possible. Give them that opportunity to, to say, I want to check this out. I want to see how things are done elsewhere. I want to be, I want to see who I become when I get out of here and go somewhere else because I think that that journey of becoming is also something that we see as international educators whether we are bringing students into our campus or facilitating travel for the students from here cool can we go into our quick fire round we, now quick fire questions so Gabrielle we're just going to shoot these at you and you just do a quick answer basically all right What's your favorite restaurant that you've ever eaten at oh my gosh that I've ever eaten at I think that Pebble Beach in Bangalore has got to be one of them. It's like a little Greek, a little piece of Greece in the middle, in of, the Bangalore. middle of Bangalore. <laughs> and the food is amazing. And the decor, you just, uh, it's, a, it's a restaurant that can truly transport you. What three items do you always take with you when you go on a work trip? Uh, a scale, a, a luggage scale. Because I find that nobody knows how much their luggage is going to weigh when they're packing. <laughs> my compression socks are a must. <laughs> and my laptop, I mean, I got to be honest, it goes everywhere with me. Where's one place you'd like to visit that you haven't had a chance to yet? So I have this dream of doing the Camino de Santiago. Oh, yeah. My mom did that. Okay. So there is a way to do it from Oporto in Portugal by horseback into Santiago. And so it's called El Camino del Mar. Most people do the one from the Pyrenees, but this one is a, is a cavalgata. Mm. And I, I have it on my bucket list. And one of these days before I get too old and can still ride a horse for extended periods of time, the Camino de Santiago. That's, I think that's on my bucket list as well, actually. No, yeah. we Maybe not on a horse. <laughs> not on a horse. That's great. Well, thank you so much, Gabriel. It was such a pleasure to have you. No, uh, it's pleasure. been a pleasure to work with you all these years, and I'm glad we could have you on the podcast. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. It was really lovely to meet you and to get to speak to you and to get to hear the story of Destiny Benders. 
our podcast title. Well, I I love it that you guys are running with it. I can't wait to hear the stories of many other Destiny vendors that you will be encountering along the way. Next week, we'll be speaking with Cecilia Pereira-Yates, the founder and managing director of GB8, an international education consultancy based in the UK. We hope you'll join us next time for the latest episode of Destiny Benders. Destiny Benders.